universities need to kind of drop the diversity bullshit and start thinking seriously and in a sustained way about what they mean when they ask for diversity. Why should I have to live with my whiteness in this negative way? But mm. the fact of the matter is, is that since the invention of whiteness some 400 years ago, let's call it the beginning of the 17th century, mm. um, people of color have lived with the violent burden of whiteness. And mm. so for white people to now take some of that weight, think about it deeply, live with it, dwell on it in order to move forward in a more positive manner is, um, you know, a fairly straightforward and appropriate gesture. Hi and welcome to Shade with me, Lou Menser. I want to start by thanking you all for the positive responses and reviews from my last episodes with campaign group Fill in the Blanks and the special home education episode that I quickly recorded as an extra to help those managing under the pressure of school closures. As a full-time home educator, I wanted to offer support. I hope it helped. Your reviews were lovely. I also wanted to thank you, the parents who shared their work with me the work that they have been doing together following this episode and I can't lie they totally warmed my heart so thank you. So on to some shade news we now have a Patreon page it's important now more than ever that independent podcasting is supported and that creatives and activists who are mostly freelancers get their voices heard. My aim is to keep this podcast free of subscriptions or paywalls so that as many people as possible can benefit from the information and resources. But creating a show independently takes time and funding. So for just £1, up to £5 a month, you can support the production costs and my time. And together we can keep it paywall free for all those who can't afford to donate. And if that's you, then of course, don't worry, enjoy the content, but please do share the episodes. And for those who can donate, I've set up a tiered system of Patreon benefits, including access to shade resources. I'm going to do some live Q&As and podcast mentoring. Check out the Patreon page on patreon.com forward slash shade podcast. I'll add the link to the show notes and it's also on the Shade socials and website. And this month, I'd like to give a special thanks to Valentina Wharton, who gave a substantial donation this month, and also to Rianne, Sufan and Serena for their donations. Love you all and I hope that this episode offers a little distraction from all that's going on. Now, for today's episode... This month, my guest is author of The Image of Whiteness, Daniel C. Blight. From the advent of early colonial photography in the 19th century to the contemporary white saviour social media images, photography continues to play an integral role in the maintenance of white sovereignty. And as various scholars have shown, the technology of the camera is not innocent and nor are the images that it produces. 
So Daniel's book, The Image of Whiteness, seeks to introduce its readers to some important extracts from the troubling story of whiteness to describe its falsehoods, its paradoxes and its oppressive nature and to highlight some of the crucial work photographic artists have done to subvert and critique its image. I hope you enjoy. So in very simple terms, it's a book, a photo book, essentially, that brings together the work of 18 photographic artists from various places around the world, largely in what we might call the West. So America, um, Britain, Australia, um, some other European countries. And um, the idea with the book is to extend what one might call critical whiteness studies, which is a kind of academic discipline that critically engages whiteness, uh, to extend this into the history of photography. Uh, that's the kind of general idea. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to do that in a single book. So the book has a focus, which is to demonstrate how contemporary photographic art in various guises, as I describe in the intro essay, um, can work sort of metaphorically to visualize whiteness. And then there's an introductory essay, as I said, that kind of underpins the images and um, explains, I hope, in quite accessible terms, what whiteness is and what it does uh, socially, politically, and of course, visually. Yeah, yeah, and it is it, it is really accessible. And I love the way that you've weaved in um, co uh, contributors um, you've asked questions and, and you've got so many various viewpoints and I think that that worked really well. But with all of this type of work that many of us are involved in, there are always going to be detractors of the work and um, with the level of trolling and negativity that we can receive online. I just wondered how much consideration you, you put into that in terms of, you know, you have to protect yourself and your life. I wondered if you took that into consideration um, at all. Sure. Um, I guess there's a few things to say about that. Mm. One is that there's a sense in which rather conveniently white people and whiteness have historically looked to protect themselves first. Mm. So I had what I mean is first um, in front of pe black people, brown people, people of color. And so my general position on that is that I have um, in a sense, a number of defense mechanisms built up to protect me from the sort of violence that people of color would experience. Yeah. Put, put that simply, the sort of violence in the form of hate speech, uh, certainly, uh, that I've received since publishing the book pales in comparison to the sort of violence people of color experience on a daily basis. So I think it's important to put that into perspective. And certainly I've thought about that. There is a kind of practical element in the sense that I um, have a partner, stepchildren, and want to uh, protect them and all that kind of thing. But I've noticed, or I suppose in a sense, been lucky that the um, insults and kind of violence uh, I've received has been verbally, you know, emails, uh, the odd death threat, but nothing that uh, surprises me, really, if that makes sense. 
kind of crazy that we even have to include that in the discussion, but but we do, and I'm just very interested in in how my guests just generally deal with that, and um, yeah, on all different levels how they consider it. Let's move on to the book and the, and the contents of the book, and the images selected form a critique of of whiteness, the space that whiteness takes up in our consciousness, and I've been thinking about that as a photo project. But then when I was rereading your interviews about photo projects on whiteness, I loved your interview with Claudia Rankine, um, and she did a project called On Blondness and Whiteness. And it reminded me of some of the images that I was creating. And um, But then since then, I've been toying with, toying with the idea, again, of continuing that project but your book really made me stop and think and it's especially um, a statement by Stanley Wanambwa um, in your book where he said that whiteness cannot be identified fixed um, and and embodied definitively by photography uh, whiteness is visibly invisible whiteness is critiqued in images by reframing and by giving it a new meaning I just wondered if we can talk a little bit about the concept of photographing whiteness um, and as a white photo critic yourself how what that means to you yeah I think Stanley's point first uh, he makes that point smartly in the sense that I think photography does more generally which mm. is to say it represents aspects of reality rather than depicts them straightforwardly so you know the simple way to put that in a kind of photography theory context is that a photograph doesn't show you reality, it shows you a representation of reality. And I suppose that space there between, you know, reality, the world one might photograph, and the photographic representation of it uh, creates an opportunity for subversion or a shift in meaning somehow. And that's very much what the, I think, the artists in the book I've chosen do with their photographic work. The idea being that instead of directly showing acts of racist white violence, let's say, although there are images that do that, there are often acts of subversion making use of uh, forms of different forms of photographic practice. So collage, be it analog or digital uh, text image works in the case of um, the spreads from Viet Le and Michelle Dizon's uh, book White Gaze that was published two, two years ago. So there are various approaches to understanding how I think photography works both in relation to whiteness specifically and more generally as a medium of representations. And we're seeing a, a shift, a social shift at the moment around the ideas, um, around questioning whiteness. We're becoming more used to having these conversations but with all of the the work that we do and with all all of the guests that I speak to who are all contributing to this work in one way or another we're all concerned about the narratives well who's receiving these these narratives the concern is um as always that we're preaching to the choir um and I'm just interested in the varying responses to your book yeah I suppose I'm regularly communicate with you know, students in photography where I teach at the University of Brighton, other scholars, lots of photographers, artists, curators, writers, etc. Um, I think the way in which I've, or rather the book and some of the ideas have reached outside that community is both in uh, the way that 
some mainstream journalistic publications have picked up the book. So I wrote something on the book for Vogue and I wrote something on the book for The Guardian. And they're both pretty good examples of uh, publications with a large audience. Mm. And then I also think, and this is incredibly important to the book itself, that because it's a book that engages both the history and theory and practice of photography and also uh, you know, the sociology and philosophy of race, critical race studies, critical whiteness studies. There's a kind of academic interdisciplinary thing going on, too. Uh, that's actually where the book was uh, born from. It began with a symposium in 2017 that invited um, a number of scholars from different disciplines to engage the idea of whiteness and white culture. That's really interesting. And especially for someone like me, I did some brief sort of tertiary level education, but, you know, it was very practical based and I certainly didn't study um, a degree or anything at university. So sometimes I find it difficult sometimes on many levels to engage with theoretical text and, and like really deep theoretical criticism is very much an emotive process for me. Um, mm. but as a result, sometimes I'm quite averse to, like I say, these deep critical texts. But, um, but what I find sometimes is, and I don't know what you feel about this, but when we engage in art criticism, and I've spoken to lots of different critics about this, um, for example, I spoke quite extensively with the White Pube duo about this when I interviewed them, that sometimes a theoretical approach can create a separation of the truth at the same time that we're trying to determine it or when we're trying to read the images that artists have produced. And, and sometimes that creates a split, I think, in, in an understanding when we get really deep in theory by looking at these works. But as a white male working in academia, how has the process been for you over time on a personal level, looking at works perhaps by non-white artists who are looking at these issues of whiteness? And where are you currently regarding your position within the structures of white supremacy in, in art? I don't know, that's a bit of a convoluted question. It doesn't really make sense, maybe. Oh, I can see some sense there, definitely. There's a number of complex questions, I think. I'll try and unpick them um i think the my role in an academic context is a good thing to start with and that's important that's something i've been thinking about a lot um there's a sense in which first of all i discovered that there is very little teaching in or rather on photography courses in higher education uh, around the subject of whiteness yeah. Um, one of the reasons the book, uh, I think, has had some impact is because it's novel in the sense that uh, not many people previously have made a connection between photography and whiteness and attempted to kind of, you know, visually and theoretically engage it. So there's a sense of disappointment that comes with that in that, you know, we should see more of it happening in uh, higher education for young people, you know, largely people that are 19, 20 and upwards, these young people should have access to critical uh, histories and discussions of colonialism, race, whiteness. So I, I feel like it's important for me to sort of push that in my role uh, and also to simultaneously acknowledge my own privilege in that system. Mm. I don't know what the 
exact outcomes of that will be, but I think it has something to do with my willingness to do the right kind of anti-racist work, mm. anti-racist pedagogy in the context of British higher education, and that yeah. that has to be a lifelong pursuit for me and a kind of very much a part of my work as an educator. Mm. I think in terms of like the wider structures of white supremacy, there's also the sense in which classrooms can be these incredible spaces within neoliberalized, financialized universities in which critical discussion can take place. Mm. But they often uh, end simply at critical discussion, you know, the end of a two hour seminar or something, the creation of new texts, etc., some mm -hmm. of which are published. But I'm interested in how this can kind of feed into uh, activist movements such as um, what the UCU union are doing with anti-racist campaigning and the gender and BAME pay gap. Mm. And so that there can be a kind of decent discussion and back and forth between, um, you know, the, the making and discussion of ideas in a classroom context and more direct um, social and political action when needs be, when, you know, needs be all the time these days. Mm. Yeah, and you were talking about your privilege there, and this is the work that you've decided to take on. And I quote again from your book where you said that I am white and I have increasingly come to see myself as a violent person. I'm not talking about the sort of verbal or physical racist violence that one might associate with fascism or Nazism. Rather, I'm suggesting that to be white is to engage in a much quieter kind of violence, one that, that remains invisible, unseen and internalised. And it exists in part because moderate, reasonable, sensible, educated, prudent whites remain inactively complicit in relative white silence. Now, as uh, a non-white person, I'm used to casting these aspersions. But what I've never stopped to, to think about is how it feels for you acknowledging that and perhaps um, having to say that out regularly on a regular basis. You know, when you're talking about your work and you're promoting your work and you're talking to students, that must be something that you're having to verbalise quite regularly. And I'm just interested in the personal response to that how how that feels carrying that and, and saying that um i think the simple answer is it feels cathartic somehow it's really complex i uh, like to think about this idea of dealing with my own whiteness through some of george yancey the mm. american philosopher's ideas he talks about um the necessity for white people to dwell in an uncomfortable space mm. where they come to see and know their own whiteness. Mm. But simultaneously, I think it's important, and George Yancey points this out, that it's a failure for white people to think that they can move immediately beyond their whiteness, beyond their white privilege. Mm. It's not something that can be through some kind of cathartic experience rejected from our bodies and mind with a click of our fingers it's something that we necessarily must live with for the mm. remainder of our lives mm. and this sounds kind of dark and depressing and morbid to lots of white people and they feel a sense of burden you know why should I have to live with my whiteness in this negative way 
But mm. the fact of the matter is, is that since the invention of whiteness some 400 years ago, let's call it the beginning of the 17th century, mm. um, people of colour have lived with the violent burden of whiteness. And mm. so for white people to now take some of that weight, think about it deeply, live with it, dwell on it in order to move forward in a more positive manner is, um, you know, a fairly straightforward and appropriate gesture. In, mm. in, um, I also feel like there's, it's important to be clear that there's no good type of white person. I mm. make this kind of obvious in the book. Um, it's not possible to become a good white person because fundamentally the identity of racial whiteness is negative. It's fundamentally violent and oppressive. So I'm mm. more or less entirely in the kind of abolitionist camp um, when I say that we have to get rid of whiteness. Now, this mm. doesn't mean that we have to get rid of people with white skin. This is another kind of error. When I say white people, I don't mean people with white skin only. You know, whiteness isn't just for people with white skin. But I think it's important to understand the history of racial whiteness specifically and how we might move into a space that rejects it and moves more positively forward. And this, of course, is very much tied to colonialism, capitalism, now neoliberalism. So a kind of approach to anti-whiteness has to come um, intersectionally with an anti-capitalist um, state of mind, you know, method of living and working I think mm. and we talk a lot about you know the expressions of whiteness needs to needs to end and we need to move forward past that and that's where a lot of the discussions and processes seem to stop and I you mentioned George Yancey there mm -hmm. when he was talking about it in your book he said you know he doesn't he's not even sure of what this would entail moving forward it's it's hard to name what is on the other side of whiteness and so I just like to just before we end just just have a think about or for you to share how you visualize beyond now and practically how these changes can start to happen within the context of of the arts yeah absolutely I think it's essentially impossible to answer the question what lies beyond whiteness without me giving you a complete kind of fiction yes but if whiteness itself is a fiction then mm. maybe a good place to start is with another fiction or, or at least a kind of idea of a world that doesn't have to bear whiteness within it mm. i think the necessary first step is a kind of uh, white consciousness on a huge global scale where all white people come to understand what whiteness is historically, um, what it means, and also, I think, importantly, the fact that they don't need it. You know, white people don't need their whiteness. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, unravelling this and individually everyone and then collectively all white people coming to terms with it seems like a very very difficult challenge um 
but it's part of the reason why I made the book in the way I did. It's a, a book that is in a sense for white people. Um, mm. And I hope that there's a sense of discomfort for some white people when they read the book and look at the images. And I hope to kind of carry that discomfort into various public spaces for talks and, you know, conversations such as this, um, that very much is a need for white people to come to terms with the history of their own subjectivity in that simple sense. The future of whiteness in photography and the arts, I suppose one way of looking at it is through a process of quote unquote decolonizing uh, universities and institutions. Often this buzzword of decolonization is used quite kind of vapidly mm. um, and it often accompanies words such as you know diversity and anti-racism but mm. not always whiteness and so I think although lots of these conversations are really good and uh, constructive pertaining to decolonization we also need to make sure that we go back to the kind of systemic roots of um racism and colonialism which is in a sense the birth of the identity of, of whiteness so i think institutions and universities need to kind of drop the diversity bullshit and mm. start thinking seriously and in a sustained way about what they mean when they ask for diversity you know there's a kind of hypothetical picture emerging in which every classroom every member of staff in a university every curator etc in a public institution there's a kind of as many white people as black people and brown people but when we get to that position it doesn't mean that whiteness will have disappeared it, it will still be running the show so to speak so yeah. it has to be engaged directly in that way yeah and part of that is education which links me perfectly to to the final question which doesn't come from me it comes from a previous guest on the show actually and they are a advocacy group who are trying to well who are campaigning for colonial history to be taught on the key stage three curriculum so that is secondary school curriculum they're a level students and that's very important work so they posed a question for you um, without knowing who the question was going to but actually it fits quite perfectly with the work that you do and their question is what was the most important thing that you were taught in school and the answer doesn't necessarily have to be academic they just thought it would be interesting to see what's meaningful to you sure it's really difficult especially considering the conversation we've we've just had about um race education and whiteness to think about uh that many things that i was taught at school that I don't now find massively problematic mm -hmm. so what I mean by that is that I wasn't taught about you know colonialism or racism and certainly not whiteness in school mm. and so I think the skills that I received at school so to speak are the kind of creative ones to do with um a certain kind of open-minded thinking so I, I think more positively about attending like English lit class yes. and uh, having um, you know productive discussions with my peers and teachers in the context of you know drama class and things yeah. like that and yeah. I look 
more negatively upon um, the kind of stricter subjects such as uh, sciences, especially biology and, uh, you know, religious education was a class I sat in. I have horrible memories of how um, we were played uh, episodes of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in religious education classes um which was seemingly supposed to demonstrate a sense of cultural and racial diversity in television um mostly white students would laugh at the um black characters and there's a whole kind of like you know legacy of this in the british education system obviously so yeah i have very mixed feelings about my experience at school um and in terms of impact that sense of kind of lateral creative thinking is the most positive thing I think that's stayed with me. Well, thank you so much. And that's it. Thanks to you. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for talking so honestly and personally as well. Like it's really refreshing and it would be helpful to so many. And it's just really generous of you. So thank you. Hey!